Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, you know how excited I am about today because I have been babbling about it for a while. As you know, I am such a data geek and a political junkie, and I have this very curated Twitter list that I set up, I don't know, four or five years ago, a few dozen people I follow for political analysis, mostly on the analytical side, and you know, I call them my imaginary friends because <laughs> I feel like I know them really well. They don't know I exist. And I'm super excited that one of my imaginary friends yay. is like, yay, in real life on our podcast today. <laughs> IRL. Uh, IRL. So we are joined today by Rachel Bittekoffer, and she is a political scientist, a political branding strategist, a polling expert. I discovered Rachel when I read an article about her, I believe it was on Slate.com, and she had almost perfectly predicted the 2018 national midterm results. I think Mm. it was like off by one seat. And (laughs) not bad, (laughs) not bad, really impressive. And I started following her on Twitter. And what I was so incredibly impressed with is how just scrappy she was and how much space she gave herself permission to take up. Mm. That world of forecasting and political data analysis is really male-dominated. Kind of a dude fest. And I follow a lot of these people and I like their work and I was appalled at the way they were pretty dismissive. And like I said, I was just really blown away by how she just held her own. She started gaining visibility. She's now had numerous appearances on news and commentary programs, two op-eds published in the New York Times, and was part of a hilariously funny skit on The Daily Show. So (laughs) there's a lot more I can say, but I really want to leave most of our time for Rachel. So Rachel, we are so excited that you are joining us and would love for you to talk about your journey at a high level. We'll start there, just a wee bit about who you are, what your journey has looked like, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, it's it's a it's quite. I mean, I love the name of the show. As soon Thank as you guys you. reached out, and I, I thought, oh, how ironic! I got. I mean, I'm sure you you have many guests from a lot of places, but if you were to encapsulate like the personal biography aspect of my life, I guess you would call it flowing east to west. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, which is perfect. So. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? So yeah, I'm really happy to be here today to talk to you guys a little bit about, I appreciate the intro uh, and that you've been with me since the beginning when I had to slog it out with Silver and those guys. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I would have told them, I mean, any of the dudes I did my PhD with should have warned these guys, like the one (laughs) fucking thing you don't ever want to (laughs) do. is trying to tell me I can't do shit because it's (laughs) a woman after my own heart. No doubt. Well, Rachel, where did that come from? Tell us a little bit about your journey and and where some of that wanting to sort of push the envelope a little bit, where did all that come from? Yeah, this is great. I don't do therapy. I do therapy in my truck with my music, you know? (laughs) We got it today, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, I haven't had a conversation about myself in a really long time. I, I guess it will be, it'll be pretty cool. 
And, you know, I, I think like there's a couple of like origin points for my tenacity. I think number one, a lot of it is just biological. Like I'm a, I'm a walking, talking, chromosomal contradiction. I've got all kinds of weird shit in my DNA that just <laughs> makes me kind of weird. <laughs> and Love I, it. So I don't think like, I think that's a necessary, but not sufficient condition. Uh, I grew up the youngest of two older brothers, one of whom I was extremely close to was only three years older. And so I spent my entire life hanging out with dudes that were three years older than me, Mm. getting my ass kicked. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. (laughs) I was eight. I was impervious to physical pain, which set me up very nicely for a lifetime of chronic health issues. And I also had learned never to show weakness because the, you know, in, in these boy crews that I would run with and I spent a good chunk of my formative years kind of being a tomboy, you know, hanging Mm. out with dudes, doing dude shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I um I think that's some of it. You know, you can't show weakness among men, which is sad, like we socialize men that way, but it, it is uh definitely a product of of trying to twice walk around a man's world as yeah. a woman. And like, you know, I didn't realize too, like I don't know. We're the, I'm the first, I wish, I hope women, the younger women hear this too. Like I'm the first generation post row. I was born in 77. Okay. So yeah. I had like, literally I grew up maybe brat, but like we stabilized in Virginia and Maryland suburbs. Okay. And so my classes were, you know, girls and boys and all kinds mm-hmm. of, of racial diversity and everything was shits and giggles, you know, and you go in there, my parents were Reagan Republicans I remember watching the 80 election, the 84 election, even though most people would never remember something like that. Yeah, you were a little when you were watching that then. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of, like I said, a freak, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, like I go into my fifth grade like segment on civil rights, right? I mean, this is like a big fucking moment for me because like everyone else is catching flies into their pencil sharpeners, but I... <laughs> was strangely interested. I was like, wait a minute. I like, I just couldn't get over the fact like she's on to the segment about MLK Jr. But I'm just sitting there having this epiphany moment at my desk, watching the other kids catch flies. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, it's 1980 fucking six. That in the sixties, like you were alive teacher and black people couldn't go into a fucking bathroom or a restaurant. That was an epiphany for me, okay? Because, like, it at, at that point, I think that's the moment where, like, my weird DNA combined with the mm. weird environment in which I was going to be living to make me question basically fucking everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, at the same time, like, even though I started to learn about feminism a little bit in college, I would have, if I had never gone to a PhD, I would and stayed in Eugene, Oregon, which is a liberal bubble, bubble in a liberal state. I had no fucking idea that sexism was so rampant still. And I wouldn't maybe know if I had never been, you know, unless you're a woman that goes into a man's field or is challenging the corporate ladder or something like that. I guess, you know, it's it's really when you fall into competition with these dudes that shit gets real, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, but but that's because, you know, I was born in 77. So I only ever saw a desegregated world in which women had until today, at least had equal rights under the law. Right. Under the law, not always in practice, but under the law. Right. Right. 
So here you are in grade school, having your eyes open to the fact the world hadn't always been like that. You're in the D.C. area. So how did you ultimately make your way from there to very liberal Eugene, Oregon and a Ph.D.? Because I don't think it was a straight line. No, it it definitely (laughs) wasn't. Right. I again, I mean, uh, some of this is I, I take full responsibility for my hood limb fun as in, in my <laughs> and absolutely have zero regrets about any of it. Right. But at the end of the day, I mean, I, you know, getting exposed to kids that were three years older than me, <laughs> I ended up getting into the Grateful Dead, you know, nice. and traveling around the U.S. Uh, Jerry died pretty quick after I graduated at a, at a high school. So like when right when I got full mobilic freedom is mm. when that when that happened and i discovered eugene you know on that circuit and and i was, I was sitting there i spent about a year actually investigating where i wanted to end up and i, I remembered eugene and i was like i'm going up there again and oh man i wasn't in the state but like 10 minutes when i was like this is home oh <laughs> that's cool <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just such an incredible place. It's so incredibly beautiful out in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. You know, the people are cool. (laughs) Yeah. Everything's like fine. I'm a quality over quantity person. Yeah. So, you know, fine cheese, fine wine, fine beer. Now you can get that shit everywhere. Okay. Right. Like back in the 90s. There, there was like a total desert drive place on the East Coast, especially for good yeah. beer and good quality food. Everything was kind of like, a, you know, the buffet level. Right. <laughs> right. Well, totally. I, have to, I have to say I moved from L.A. to D.C. in 1991. And my reaction was, where are the really yummy places to eat? And like mm. everything's super stuffy and traditional. So I totally hear what you're saying. And that's obviously changed dramatically now but oh my god yes now at least like so when I had to look at at moving to Georgia which is you know to do my PhD I got like I had pretty much one option to go and get funding and uh you know pursue my PhD which I had to apply to as a single mom I didn't go to college at all till I was 24 Mm. and then you know I applied to my PhD programs and I ended up getting into the University of Georgia with enough financial assistance for it to make sense to try. <laughs> yeah. I guess being completely fucking ignorant of, of how higher ed worked and how yeah. hard the job market would be. So luckily I had imperfect information. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sometimes having that imperfect information is actually what it's, gets you what you what you right. Oh my God, yes. right. Now, if anybody had told me, hey Rachel, not only are you going to go live in the deep South for six years, okay, which is just like, it's culture shock, right? I mean, it's a sacrifice, but nobody said, hey, by the way, you'll never go home again because if you yeah. can get a job, if, big if, as a professor, you'll have absolutely zero geographic flexibility. And I was yep. very lucky because I ended up in coastal Virginia for five years after I finished. And now I'm home in, of course, in Oregon, but you know, coastal Virginia in terms of, of a regional yeah. stroll to pick is it's a pretty good pick, you know? Not too bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah so that yeah. was, you were teaching poli sci or what were you yeah, teaching? Yeah, I came out of school at UGA and took the only appointment that I could get, which was a lecturer position. So it's not, you know, it's, it's tough out there. Right. Yeah. And I, and I was lucky. I mean, the market is just a brutal beast. Some people will never even get a phone call, dude. Right. <laughs> That's crazy, you know, but what really worked for me and the reason we're having this conversation, I think 
is I have a big carpe diem philosophy. So mm. I managed to meet this guy, a fellow professor who was in the department but had been pulled out for administration. Uh, and his name was Quentin Kidd. And he ran like the university, had a, had a donor funded little research, survey research lab. And I was like, well, you know, I know you're super busy now being the big dean guy. And I have a lot of background in polling. You know, I'd love to take that little thing and get it a permanent staff fixed in so we could do a lot of survey work and do these horse race surveys in Virginia. And so I really cut my teeth in the media and the electoral analysis stuff as a pollster at the Wasson Center reporting out the results of these polls and giving analysis on Virginia politics. And uh, it was, you know, had this sitting Ferrari in the garage that no one was tracking. <laughs> I was like, right. well, shit, I'll take that. And hey, let's do tracking surveys, man. Let's like, let's like make Wasson Center a big thing, you know? And that's what I did. And, and it worked out really great for a long time, but you know, it wasn't meant to be for me to stay there. So here I am. Yeah. yeah. And so that was your first sort of taste of, I don't know what a tracking survey is. So okay. can you explain that? And then that's your first sort of foray, I guess, into more of the analytics side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's good, like in a, in a general election, to get a base indicator. So like, say like a poll right after Labor Day, because most people don't, normals, normal people, <laughs> which Normies. we are not. <laughs> and that's why I call them in my book, norms, right? The norms <laughs> don't pay any attention to politics fucking ever, but the little bit that they do pay attention to politics happens after Labor Day, right? So you want to yeah. drop a first survey in the, in the field right after that Labor Day holiday. And what that will give you is a baseline, right? So you can look for campaign effects. Now, in this era, and I don't want to get too technical, this is supposed to be about my uh, other stuff, but you know, yeah. in this era, the whole theory that I developed from other academic theories weaved together was that polarization, hyperpartisanship have made things not much more inelastic. So like those tracking surveys that I ran, it was really interesting because the data was pretty much steady in every cycle that I ran there. Like our data was pretty steady on, on, the, on the margin of win and like the spread between the Republican and Democrats, hmm. that's different than how the system used to be, guys. And that's because now things happen. And even though people probably do have legitimate criticism or not about, you know, Trump's latest thing, they don't tell pollsters that. Like when pollsters ask, do you approve of President Trump? To them, there's a tribal like role to play right? mm. <laughs> and keeping that up. And that's why like through his administration, his approval ratings are so stagnant that they, they have a very limited range. And even as a pandemic came in and a pandemic's going to have, it can have a rally around the flag, good job effect, or it could have a, boy, you fucked this up effect. Right. And you saw that in all the international data. So they ran a, the economist ran a, survey where they put all the countries in or, you know, all the democratic countries in and measured public opinion on COVID management. And you can see the people that did really good getting these bumps, people who fucked it up, you know, it was going down. Yeah. Only one place, guys, has a, has a, has a, you know, once a century, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 body count crisis. And the public opinion stays completely stagnant the whole time, wow. right? And that shit wow. should never happen. So anyway, that's what I, I, polling was great for me because I have this innovative predisposition to innovate on shit anyway. Yeah. And, and to, once I earned Quentin's trust and respect, because I was a new colleague, 
And he gave me control of the surveys, you know, like I had a great time doing polling. Polling has a lot of value in it. It's just that we don't use them. Polls tell us about elections. The only thing that they can tell us, whether they're going to be close or whether they're not. Right, right. (laughs) And and it's doing that, right? The polls are doing that. They've always done that. We're just asking them for a specificity. They are statistically incapable of providing because any competitive election is going to break down tops three-point margin, right, usually. And so, like, the poll's margin of error is three points. So you clearly have this huge affinity for data and for politics and for analyzing information. And you commented that, I'm just going to take you back in time a little bit, that you were a single mom, you didn't start college till you were 24. And so I'm really curious, what was the catharsis or the moment that you decided to go back to college or to pursue political science? I'm just really curious. What happened in between that period of time of, I'm a single mom, I'm not going to college, to, woohoo, I'm in a PhD program? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had my son when, uh, and I think he was two or three when I enrolled in, in the community college for the first time. And um, I think what inspired me was boredom, okay? Mm. So like, it had been fun to sit around and party all day and go to shows for a long time. And then it just stopped being fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I need something to do. And I had, um, you know, a dead end job. It was actually a very nice job for somebody with no college education. I, I ran the HR department of this polling outfit. So I had an important job and more professional than most, you know, non-college educated high school graduates would, would be able to finagle but it was always going to be dead end in terms of the pay and the possibilities. And it wasn't mentally taxing. (laughs) So anyway, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to go try school because when I was in high school, if I had ever gone to high school, I would have done great. You know, (laughs) like, I mean, I, that's why I was able to graduate like on the half-ass homeschool, like, I, I have a real diploma, but I I, I, don't, I don't remember, like, I didn't even meet the people in the senior class. <laughs> so I think uh, it's safe to say you do not have the traditional background of your average PhD. No, no. I, I've had way too much fun to even, like, they, you know what I mean? Like, if an average PhD had even one ounce of the fun I've had, they'd all be cooler and happier people, you know? <laughs> So yeah, anyway, but then it happened quick, ladies. You'll like this shit. So I went to the community college and I I was a little nervous, to be honest with you. I didn't take the SATs and I remembered being in honors and shit, but I hadn't been in an educational setting. I didn't know how I would react to it, but I found the work to be pretty easy. And, you know, once I started to get going academically, one of the first classes I took was one on the course list that for the general ed that said, uh, you know, intro to American government. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a nerd. I like, I watched the news. I was always the only person at Grateful Dead Lot reading the New York Times, you know? <laughs> I'd have my cigarette, my coffee, and the New York Times, right? Um, so, you know, I, was, I had a reputation for being weird. But anyway, I get in there, and my professor, this great guy, his name is Steve Candy, he is their height of the Bush administration, right? 2003, 2004, 2005, sometime around there. And Candy is, is you know, in full, 
what the fuck mode, you know? And I, <laughs> and I just remember watching them being like, now that I could do as a job, okay? Like, there, I could do that, be a professor. That would be cool. I love that's politics. Interesting. And then yeah. I, I, that's when I realized, too, that you could major in political science, right? I, I was like, well, I know what I'm doing, dude. And um, part of me was nervous, risk adverse as a single mom. And part of me considered doing HR business degree, right? And I could have certainly done that and would have been making a, a good chunk of chain right out of college. <laughs> but I wanted to pursue, you know, it was it was that time period where we're telling everybody to do what feels good. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for some fucking reason, I am so sick that politics feels good, you know? Right. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought might, maybe I would be a lawyer, okay? But, like, the thing I was really interested in in the law is all, like, you know, the constitutional law shit. And yeah. you have to be a trust funder to be able to go do that with your life. You can't be right, a right, right. single mom with no family support. <laughs> you got to make some money. <laughs> go out there and get people off of death row and shit. So, like, to me, through my senior year, I transferred over to the University of Oregon, and that's where I, I graduated from. You know, when I when it came time to put up or shut up, number one, the economy was literally fucking exploding. I lost my job in February of that company I'd worked at for 12 years as part of that recession. And, um, you know, I I had to decide, was I going to be a lawyer or professor and professors? They apparently pay you to come learn and do the degrees. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going that way, you know, and uh, that the rest is history. I. I literally moved all the way across the country to the deep South from Eugene to Athens. I like it. Flowing East and West. Right. And so (laughs) you were, so you were still a professor um, in coastal Virginia when you forecasted or predicted the results for the 2018 midterms. Right. And was that something that you were doing as part of your academic work or was that something you were doing for leisure? Because I could see it either way with you. It was both. It's always (laughs) both. When you do what you love, you get paid to do what you love, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So my theory is not well understood. Uh, Some of that is due to, you know, headlines that kind of give it a, um, like a bump in the wrong direction. But in any case, like I come to my theory about how elections, modern elections happen in the polarized environment mm-hmm. by accident. And some of it is, you know, from the polling work I was doing in Virginia and on, I did not predict that Donald Trump was going to win the general election, but I was a political behavioralist. I taught campaigns and elections. So we go through very extensively the electoral college map, the polling data, I'm sharply analytical. So I was able to give my students a pretty good estimation of what should happen based on the forecasting models and other predictions. And then based on demographics, which I had begun to increasingly recognize, determined election outcomes, right? In, yeah. real, in ways that are moving. That's why it's important to understand like the demographics the political like predisposition for certain demographics has been changing right Mm. so i um you know with uh the 2018 cycle uh, or with trump coming up i had said listen you know everything points to this victory but there's a weak spot and that weak spot in the poli side literature is this idea of, of having a divided party okay you can have a divided party that's divided because the voting like mass part of it, the mass public part of it is there's a lot of disunity and dissatisfaction over the nominee. Okay. Or you can have a divided party where it's the elites 
and the mass public super stoked on the nominee, but the elites are divided, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly you could have situations where both the mass and the elites are divided. But in the case of 2016, we have a story of two different national party divisions going on, right? You've got the Democratic Party, party-wise, is 100% behind Clinton, and in fact was so behind Clinton that she racked up massive endorsements well before the invisible primary really got going, okay? Mm-hmm. So, like, Mm -hmm. there was no, like, angst about who should be the nominee amongst party, like, I don't want to say establishment, but, you know, the mainstream of the party. Most of the officials, most of the parties, the state parties, DNC, certainly, right? They were half, like, it was a contentious fight, but they weren't bitter and, like, angsty about the outcome. The mass public in the Democratic Party, of course, though, different story, right? I mean, we watched that convention in 2016. I was at home and I didn't have a national voice. But if I, if I was me now, you would have been watching it happen on Twitter because I would have been like, holy shit, this is really fucking bad. Mm. <laughs> like, when you have your Bernie delegates almost like have like a revolution on the convention floor. Right. Just, that first night of the 2016 convention was tenuous, okay? And yeah. it was, of course, enhanced by the very timely, very shrewd uh, release of the DNC emails by um, WikiLeaks, right? Right. And the Russians. So, like, but it was very hot in there. And they only, bar- Bernie Sanders could barely keep his own faction in line. When he went right. and he gave a speech in the parking garage before that, and told the you know his Bernie supporters we need to get behind Clinton because the threat from Trump is so severe. They booed his ass. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, as a political scientist, you're like, oh, that's bad. I mean, but it could have been completely obsolete or or like a non-factor because on the other side, what did you have? You had a voting public that came out pretty strong and pretty quickly built constant momentum that never wavered for Trump and until the point where he was winning 50% in the later primaries. So the public was fine with him being the nominee, but the party was like, holy shit. Right. (laughs) And almost none of them went to the convention, right? I mean, they boycotted the convention. Everyone forgets that because he wins the general and then suddenly the party comes under his fold. Most of the Republican establishment was working actively against Trump most of the time. Right. Right. So in any case like that, I said, listen, I think there's an Achilles heel with the Democrats. And I think it's this we're going to see potentially a lot of defection, a lot of third party like Ralph Nader 2000 voting because people are either going to vote for this Jill Stein chick or they're going to write in Bernie Sanders on the right end. Right. And, you know, it ended up being very important to the outcomes. There's, you know, obviously Clinton loses the conversion pool, the independent fight, right? Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, like the Florida uh, neighbor votes was like 2% of the electorate in Florida. We right. looked at defection rates, six points in Wisconsin, okay? 6% wow. of the electorate that cast ballots in that election cast not Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump ballots. And that is absolutely fucking insane. And it is something more than I could have ever predicted. But once I, unlike some people, I learned from shit. Yeah. (laughs) So like that moment was like, oh, I don't think people understand how elections work. And I think maybe I'm going to devote myself to revising how elections work in a hyper-partisan tribal electorate because it's, yeah. it's a completely different electorate. We've never had an electorate like this 
The closest thing we have is the regional divide in the electorate right before the Civil War, right? But yeah. this electorate that we're dealing with, it doesn't behave the same way it did 10 years ago. And so, Rachel, this feels like a, a shift for you, right? This feels like almost an awakening or something. So what did the advent of this situation, what did that do for you personally and professionally? And how did that weirdness that you talked about, how did that all come through as a result of what you were seeing in 2016? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was definitely, per, I mean, here's the thing is like Donald Trump there's a commander in chief test, okay? Like up until this moment, every person that's ever had a nomination to a party, and I would even throw Barry Goldwater, who is radical as fuck into this category, because right. Barry Goldwater could still control his emotions and still behave in a civilized, rational way. Donald Trump was so observedly nuts, right, that he obviously <laughs> failed the commander in chief huh? test. Can this person mentally, temperamentally, behaviorally, fulfilled the obligations of the office of the presidency. And the fact right, that we right. have an administration in armed coup tells you no, right? right. <laughs> and so I knew that. And I also knew like that we didn't have to lose 2016. Like if we, if the Clinton team, if like the Clinton team had understood this defection risk from the Bernie people, they could have nominated Warren and mitigated a shit ton of that and ran. Yep. A, and I don't fault them in my book. I'm very clear. I don't ever fault people. I just explain why their behavior happens in the ways that it does. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of, of the Clinton strategy, you were seeing evidence that suggested historic defection by Republicans from Trump to vote in the early data. It was, right. over, you know what I mean? So like in Virginia, the amount of people who were Republicans who were telling us they would never vote for Trump, that was, it was very promising data to make decisions on. I, they, they made smart database decisions. It's just that if they had talked to me, I would have told them, <laughs> yeah, that's not how shit works anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, there is something really interesting about the timing of when you started your career in this work and what was happening in this country. It almost feels like, wow, you showed up at exactly the right time. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It does. I mean, it, 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 be, be, be honest with you, like, I, I guess it's pretty clear that I value this, like, democratic maintenance work that I, that has always shaped me. <laughs> what does that, what does that mean, the democratic maintenance work? What does that mean? Like the more important thing to me than my own professional development career track, mm. the shit that I invested mm. in, is understanding how if you cannot if you know how fucked we are, right? Like you know you're not in a functioning democracy anymore, right? You're in yeah. a you know, like we were in a crippled democracy and now we're in a dysfunctional democracy, right? <laughs> and, right. and we're on the verge of collapse, right? So right. like I just could never in anything I did at my time at CNU and the Lawson Center, at my time in the Niskanen Center, put ahead, like, what I needed to do to pursue the analytic track best is to stay as dry as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And what I needed to do to help America survive this democratic crisis is inherently different, <laughs> yeah, right. you know? Right. And so like, right. it's not like I just, just woke up one day and said, you know what, fuck it, I'm not going to be an academic. I'm not going to be a researcher. I'm going to go out there and, and do this shit for the greater good. And, and the, like the whole purpose of my information, the reason I'm desperate to hear people, to have people hear it and to understand it 
isn't because I want them to, to even affiliate it with me. It's because if we don't make these changes, we're going to get rolled over electorally at a time period when the very the, the cost of that will be some kind of quasi-fascist government. Okay? Yeah. So, you know, like, I, it's not like I, I decided, okay, well, if I have to do this, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that. It's just that I always, when two paths pop up and one of them takes me down the track of defending democracy, I kept choosing that track. Yeah. And now I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Know? And and so that that track took you from coastal Virginia back to Oregon, right? Yeah. I mean, that was actually for mental health reasons. Here's the thing. Athens, Georgia is lovely. So is Austin. Okay, DC, the Metro Atlantic area, lovely, the Northeast, all these things are fucking great. But if you've been to the Pacific Northwest, dude, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just not my budget, man. Yeah. 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 So, so you left academia and now you're out on your own. So talk a little bit about that transition and what you are doing now. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's the scariest shit I've ever done, right? I mean, mm. my, my, I had, I had, no choice but to leave CNU because my application for tenure conversion was denied. I mean, the process was was canceled, so it wasn't denied. You know, they just didn't do it. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, the purpose of that, obviously, was to get me to leave. They knew I wouldn't stay there without tenure. So off I go. And, and it was a gamble. But it was one I was willing to make because at the end of the day, my objective is always the same. There's this huge problem. We have this immensely complex problem. The other party is not just at war with us. They And they're not just using guns to flowers anymore. We're talking about fucking tanks, man. They're rolling tanks right down the field. <laughs> and right. so I have to help these people make war. And like liberals don't do that, okay? Liberals make love, not war. Not It's the opposite. And what I'm trying to get people to do in their messaging, their posture, their comms, their media appearances, their stump speeches is to make war, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and it is inherently against our nature. It's certainly nothing that I aspired to as a polarization scholar, <laughs> yeah. but it is what we need to do. You know, Rachel, it's, yeah, well, and it's so hard because I think that you're right. You know, and we don't usually get super political on this podcast, but I'm I'm going to because I think it's, you know, I think it's been the nature of Democrats historically to be like, come on, let's bring everybody together. And can't we, you know, can't we look out for our fellow man and whatever, but that's assuming both sides are, are fighting fair. And I just don't think that that's the case anymore. And so, absolutely, but then I fear the opposite as well. Like, can we have that level of crazy on both sides? And if we do, what happens to our Republic then? Well, I can tell you when, when your patient has got stage four cancer wrapped through their whole body and yep. is on the deathbed, which is our democracy today, yep. then you, they, they, those are, so you make these considerations and that's how we ended up in this mess, right? Yep. For 10 years, 15 years, the, the calculus has been, well, that's not worth, it's not worth creating propaganda and pushing negative emotions on our side so that we can win political power. Okay. Right. But right. now, 10 years later, right? It has become a do or die situation. And let me make this clear, okay? If we fail, people will die. Yeah. People who are gay will be criminalized. Yep. Right? We may well see 
Latino people in, in Arizona and Texas and other places segmented out into certain types of citizenship. Okay. Like this is not weird. They are not fucking around. They have come to play and we have no choice. There is not an easy decision to say, okay, I'm going to start juicing up the electorate. And my, and my entire strategy is based on their strategy, which is, look, you don't have persuasion messages and mobilization message. You've got one message, fear the Democratic Party. That's what they run, right? So like what we want to be doing is get people to understand democracy is on the line and democracy affects your wallet, affects your health, it affects your financial security, it affects your physical security. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have a bunch of crazy people in charge of your life, right? Yep. You know, there's ways, what they do is wholly different. It is in terms of the technique with using emotion and fear and stakes framing and uh, brand referendum message style. That's the innovation. That stuff is all similar, but at the end of the day, they have to make up shit, right? Or they have to like really, like they're, they're big fans of the what I call the mountain out of the molehill strategy, right? They find <laughs> they find one group of liberals nuts enough to fucking get rid of the Lincoln statue, Right. And then they, they use that to define the entire party. Right. right. And, and, and those that involves hyperbole, a broad brush. You can't, you know, it's, it's the opposite of specificity and technicality, which is how yeah. Democrats like to structure their arguments. So that's why, like, the, the change has been difficult to get rolling, but it is starting to make some serious progress. Well, yeah, because I also worry, you know, just going back to your point about the 2016 convention and, and the example of the Bernie Democrats, what I, I find that we're super fractured, right, where I think what Republicans are specifically very good at, to your point, is one message, one marginalized issue and then just blow the shit out of it. Right. And yet one of the things that has been always so powerful about the democratic party is the inclusion aspect, but with that inclusion becomes an inability to have a singular sort of issue. And so where do we go from here in order to, to achieve what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, some of that, I mean, some, technically some of this is true, right? I mean, with political science books and like my, a lot of my research agenda is on uh, establishing and quantifying asymmetry between the parties. And one of these, mm-hmm. one, one of the books by someone else, Matt Grossman and Dan Hopkins, you know, establishes, look, you've got a party that's kind of designed around ideological positioning and the other one, which is group interest oriented, right? So you have all these coalitions of groups fighting for attention and time and resource. But like one of the frustrations as a political scientist, at least for me, I don't know if anybody else cares. I care a lot because of what my work is involved in is that people will take that and that they think that means like, okay, Republicans are all ideology and Democrats are all group oriented. And that's not what any political scientist would want you to know from that. Right. Right. The academic writing style creates that kind of misperception, especially in the way the findings tend to get reported in media, but it's not absolute guys. Okay. We have ideology in as an inherent feature of the democratic coalition the difference is what Republicans have done is they have kept their cohesion on principle and not got bogged down into practice, right? Right. So part of the innovation that I'm trying to bring to the party is getting them to understand, like, look, take, for example, like this time period, that we're, this, this cycle that we're facing, this and the next one, in which democracy itself will be on the ballot, right? You, you build a cohesive message from that democratic coalition 
Because at the end of the day, whether a person's a climate activist or LGBTQ plus activist, mm-hmm. women's rights, civil rights, Black Lives Matter, doesn't fucking matter what the particular policy niche is. What matters is that it's source at the root level. It's, it's, it's you know, th- there's a binding freedom focus, right? Yeah. Rights and freedoms and equality and justice. And so you, do- you can tie people together on these large frames in ways that you that aren't obvious when you're talking about all these specific niche interest groups in the party's coalition. You know, Rachel, what really, really strikes me listening to you talk is how you are so deeply driven by what you believe and what's important to you. And while your path may not look like this perfectly straight line, <laughs> it just strikes me the through line is that you follow where your interests are. Mm. You're not afraid to march to your own beat. You've said that in a couple of different ways and that you are willing to, I'm going to say, put your money where your mouth is in terms of going out on your own. I mean, what you are doing is like incredibly important and is probably not the most financially secure professional path. Oh God, no, I've been a terrible fucking parent, man. Let me just <laughs> and, and, and you know, like this is coming on like, you know, I, my son has autism. So yeah, no, I definitely have, um, I've, I've, what I've done is literally fucking nuts. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's, it, it's nutty. It's not as nutty as it sounds. Cause I, I, with the risk of se- sounding like a mellow, maniac, megalomaniac, whatever, <laughs> melomaniac. I like that, right? Just yeah, that's good. Donovan all day. No, I, I, <laughs> at the risk of sounding like Donald Trump with this, like, you know, narcissistic, I alone can fix it, <laughs> you know, problem. You know, I, I, I would bet on myself 100% of the time. Mm. If, if, and, and that's because I don't ever say, I mean, I'm always very prudent about what I say I'm going to do. <laughs> but if like, so in, in any case, what I figured was, okay, I'm going to commit career suicide and things are going to be tight for a while, but shit will get better. And that's as long as I can survive economically, which is where I've been for about 18 months now, then, you know, it's good enough for me and I'll worry about, you know, financial stability later. And I do have to worry about it because I have this kid that's going to rely on me for a long time. Yeah. But it was, it was a gamble, true, but, it, you know, I also knew... I had the drive and the initiative to make it work. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think so much, Rachel, about this journey that you've been on and, you know, like you, like Sherry said, following your passion and following your interest. And I love what you just said about betting on you. And I'm so curious if you could go back to your younger self and think back to that little, the little we one remembering the, the 1980 um, convention or, you know, is there any piece of advice you might give to her uh, to sort of think about or prepare for the future that's uh, that was coming towards you? It's so funny because, like, I think maybe everybody in their midlife starts to think about this shit, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not like I've never thought about it, right? I mean, number one, the first thing I would tell my younger self is, like, all the shit that old people say about getting old is actually 100% true and, like, a 1,000% fucking worse, okay? So when your mouth says, don't crack your knuckles, it's going to make your hands hurt when you're old, don't fucking crack them. 
like I wish like I could go back in time and be like, you know, these old people that you think are so stupid. They are like stupid in some ways, but not in this way. Like they <laughs> telling you what's going stay skinny, stay healthy. You know, that, that stuff would be really important to me. You know, here's, here's the question. Like I, you guys ask a lot about like resilience and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention this. I've never really talked about it publicly, but in 96, I was robbed violently by uh, a guy on the street. Like he, he could have robbed me with a knife or a gun. He wanted my money, uh, but he didn't. He instead choked me out from behind. Mm. Right. So like, I didn't even know I was, that I was being robbed until I was beaten back into consciousness. And that's when I realized I was being robbed and not murdered. Right. It was a, uh, quite the experience to go through uh the process of dying which is what i experienced that night in atlanta you know to die in a way that has you have plenty of time to contemplate so Mm. there's two things that happened during that strangulation process and one of them was the moment when i realized that i would not be able to fight my way out okay which i have always been able to scrap my way through everything right and just the total, total hopelessness of knowing that I was powerless, right? Um, and then the realization, too, that, like, I was going to just be some dead body in a land. Oh, <laughs> I mean, my, yes. my mom, you know, was going to have to deal with that, right? Those are the things that, like, went through my head when I thought I was dying. I, you know, I thought that was it. These are the last thoughts that I would ever have. Yeah, and I yeah. remember thinking, God, what an unremarkable ending to like to shit, you know. <laughs> and uh, then I, you know, I wake up. I wake up face down on this alley floor in Atlanta. A thunderstorm had broken out, literally in the middle of this. So you can imagine the scene. Face down in this alley. I'd gotten off at the wrong metro stop. I had been shooting for one called Little Five Points, and I ended up at this place called Five Points, which in the '90s was not a nice place, apparently. And so that's how this all came about. And and so I wake up and and I hear this man, you know, screaming, "Where's your money? Where's your money?" and I'm trying to tell him, but I've, I've actually bit part of my tongue off and, you know, I'm so damaged in the throat. Like, like I died. So like I lost control of my bodily functions and everything. Right? And like I wake up and I can't talk, but I'm trying to tell this guy like where my wallet is. Uh, but the mostly guys, like what's happening at the same time is like the, the first like conscious moment when like I realized I was awake and not dead. I was filled with such tremendous utter relief to not mm. be dead, right? Yeah. It, it like surged through my body, like it almost like a chemical reaction. My entire being, my brain, my breath, my thoughts, my body was screaming, oh my God, I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. And like getting out of the situation, getting through the process of reporting to the police and blah, blah, blah. Like I go into shock and like da da da, but I never ever lost that feeling of being grateful to be alive. Right? Wow. I mean, there's not a day that I don't sit there and think, well, yeah. I mean, this 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 is bad. Like this thing happened and it's bad. Like no matter what it is, my appendix burst. Right. You know, economic concerns, whatever. Just it's just. I'm so fucking lucky to be alive. <laughs> and I don't, I'm an atheist. I don't talk about it a lot just because I don't have time, but I'm an atheist. So for me, 
my my moral system and my life system is based on you get one one run okay <laughs> like there's yeah. not going to be some second thing some second act that's going to be better than the first so fuck it if the first gets canceled early right like right. i don't have that belief system and i certainly would not begrudge anyone who does have it especially having gone through what i've gone through it'd be a wonderful thing to have but i don't have it so like to me every day that I'm not dead is a good day. And what I do with it from that moment on is up to me, right? But boy, what a gift to get up out of bed every day and be able to think and feel and experience this world, which is so fantastic, right? It's got Mm. so many oddities and weird shit and beautiful shit and terrible shit all wrapped up into one. And I don't know where the ride's going to drop me but I know I want to take that ride all the way dips and follies, flips and spins, whatever's got it going. As long as I get to experience life, I'm pretty happy. I cannot think of a better spot to wrap up this episode because there is no way to top that. (laughs) So we will wrap it up here. We really hope that you enjoyed it and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find info and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.